Good to go? All right. <clears throat> so John 1.14, we're starting with the next section of our Bible, and the next section of our Bible would be um, the birth of Christ. So we finished the Old Testament last time. And again, I'm not trying to really do a survey of the Bible now, uh, but just kind of giving you the, the arrangement and a quote-unquote the story of the Bible. Uh, so when you come through it, you could you know, mine it out a little better and meet it out more precisely. Um, I do have it on my mind to do a, do a Discipleship three Institute level. I don't know if I'll do that later this year or maybe wait till next year. I'd really much rather the rapture happen before any of those right. things happen, Amen. but we continue on, right? I think missionary Chris Rue said, plan like the Lord is coming back today, and, and, and no, live like the Lord is coming back today and plan like he's coming back in 100 years, which is wise advice. You know, we have to continue to plan and do things. But John 1.14 says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, for us, the Bible is built around the first coming of Christ. Right? That's what, what we look back to. His first coming is a big deal to us because that's when he atoned for our sins. I mean, if that's not a big deal to you, please hang out after class. We need to make sure you're saved. Right? So that's, that's the big deal. So we've had 400 silent years and now Jesus Christ is coming on the scene. And let's look at Isaiah chapter 7, please. Isaiah chapter 7. I'm not going to flip to a ton of verses here, but Isaiah chapter 7. If anybody sees, you know, Joanna is the custodian. She's such a sweet lady. She's so helpful. It's like a breath of fresh air, you know. Be very nice to her. Invite her in to have something. I said, tomorrow we're having lunch. Come have lunch with us because... As scared as I was about a new person, it's been like, you know, the coffee police and the, and the, the ill grill when you park, like that's all gone. So thank God. Isaiah 7.14. Oh, that's on the recording. Nuts. Isaiah 7.14. The Lord says, therefore, <clears throat> the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin, hopefully your Bible should say virgin, not a young maiden. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So after being in this bondage for over 400 years, God is sending them a deliverer. And I think this is the first thing on your notes there. Jesus Christ's birth, that first coming, is the fulfillment of at least 48 prophecies. At least 48. If you want a conservative number and a realistic number, 48 prophecies are fulfilled just when Jesus Christ comes the first time. I'll give you a few of them for you to jot down, all right? Uh, Numbers chapter 24. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17 says, there would be a star that would accompany his coming. coming. A star, a star, right? There'd be a star. God said there would be a star, uh, not a molten ball of hot gas, but an angel that will be associated with his coming. So those wise men knew what to look for. They knew from the prophecy of the Old Testament there'd be a star. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we've looked at those verses before. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we knew where to look for the Messiah, that he would be born in Bethlehem. The Bible actually names the place where the Messiah would be born, Bethlehem uh, Ephrata, meaning house of bread. So Jesus Christ would be born in the house of bread. So the wise men knew what to look for, a star. They knew where to look, Bethlehem, the house of bread. And uh, let's go to Daniel because we're in the neighborhood of Daniel. 
Go look at this. This is one of the most important prophecies in your Bible is Daniel chapter 9. So if you want to know like what's an important prophecy to understand, Daniel chapter 9 is one of the most important. Daniel 9 verse 24. And um, Daniel 9, 24 down through 27 says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people, he's talking to Daniel about the children of Israel, and upon the whole, thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, that was done by Cyrus, Unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks, and the street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times, and after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the Prince that shall come shall destroy the city, and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with the flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. So the Bible foretold the timing of Christ's birth. That actually gives the timing of when the Messiah would show up. And we could discuss that at another time, like what that all means. There's a little bit of debate about some of the stuff in Daniel 9, but it clearly shows you that there'll be this span of time from the decree to rebuild the temple to the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, at that temple. So those wise men, they weren't just, you know, playing lotto numbers like a Calvinist. They were, they were, those wise men were, they knew what to look for. They knew where to look. They even knew when to look. Because Daniel's in Babylon, and those wise men are coming from the east, so I'm sure the writings of Babylon are, of, of Daniel are getting circulated around Babylon. So they knew the what, the where, and the when of his coming. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 2. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, look at verse number 1. Matthew chapter 2, verse number 1. Right? It says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east, and are come to worship him. So at his first coming, there's these wise men that had been studying the Old Testament, and they're kind of like, we saw the star, we know the timing's right, they knew where to go, that's what they're looking for. What's interesting is there weren't more people looking. You notice that? <laughs> Only some wise men from the east. It says in the next verse, uh, when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Sad state of affairs there that nobody was looking for Jesus Christ at his, nobody's looking for Jesus Christ at his second coming because there wasn't a lot of people looking for Jesus Christ at his first coming. <laughs> the patterns repeat themselves. Nobody seemed to be looking for him then, and nobody's looking for him now. There are definitely not a lot of wise men around anymore. And I think it's a good bumper sticker. That bumper sticker, wise men still seek him, that's a pretty good bumper sticker. I think that's a pretty wise saying, wise men still seek him. And we know he's born, and we know a lot of this stuff, verses 9 to 11. It's now about two years later. Right? It says, when they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, notice that's important, they saw the young child, not the baby anymore, with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. Please notice about two years have passed now. 
They are not in a manger anymore. They're in a house. Uh, they're looking and they're talking and they're seeing a young child, not a babe and an infant. Um, and um, notice the gifts they bring, and you've probably heard this preached many times, representing the three offices that Jesus Christ would fulfill in his earthly ministry. Gold is first, because Jesus Christ is and was their king. Frankincense, for Jesus Christ the priest, what they would offer as they entered into the presence of God. And myrrh, that embalming fluid, because Jesus Christ was a prophet who was born to die. Please notice that Jesus Christ fulfills those roles in reverse. He was a prophet on earth who died. He's in heaven right now as a priest. He's coming back as a king. But when God wanted to lay those gifts out, he said, make sure you know he's a king first, right? That's what he's a king. Matthew 2, 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under. So that gives you a sense that we're about two years out because Herod is like, how old's the child? What's going on? So he starts slaughtering everybody two years old and under. So it's another reminder of one of our big ideas from the Bible. Remember if we, when we started this a couple of months ago? We said one of our big ideas that before we head into the Bible is every time the Lord moves, the devil moves to oppose him. So here the Lord is putting his Messiah on earth, and this Herod, this, this, this Antichrist, so to speak, is trying to slay all the children that could be the Messiah. Just like the devil in Genesis 6, hey, just like the devil in Genesis 6 are trying to uh, corrupt the seed, every time God moves the devil moves to oppose him. Now think about this. In Genesis chapter 4, Abel is born and Cain is born at the same time to oppose him. Abel's a type of Christ. Cain is a type of Antichrist. And they're born at the same time. I just want to throw this out for your consumption. I wouldn't die on this hill. But is it possible that Judas Iscariot was born the same night as Jesus Christ? I, if I had to put, if you had to pin me down, I'd say, mm-hmm, right? I bet there was another baby born that night who was a very different child, who have a very different future and a very different ministry, who would be an antichrist. I would bet that Judas Iscariot was born the same night as Jesus because every time the devil moves, every time God moves, the devil moves to oppose him. So the patterns, you know, something, what verse do you have? Sometimes you have to look at the patterns and the similitudes and the way God is laying things out. So that's some food for thought about the birth of Christ. Let's go to the second, the next section for this morning. Um, the life of Christ. Specifically, we're talking about the Gospels here. All right? The life of Christ. All right? In the Gospels. The life of Christ. Let's go to Matthew chapter 13 now. Well, let's look down to verse 55. Matthew 13, down to verse 55. Matthew 13, down to verse 55. The Bible says in Matthew 13, 55, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this his mother called Mary and his brethren, James and Joseph, as Simon and Judas? Notice it says brethren, not cousins. Right? Jesus Christ had physical brothers and sisters after Jesus. Joseph and Mary had children after Jesus was born. That's why Matthew 125 calls Jesus the firstborn, all right? This should not be controversial. Religion has made this controversial, one in particular that's called a harlot, right? Um, verse 56, and his sisters, are they not all with us? So I count one, two, three, 
four boys and at least two girls, right? So there's at least six siblings that Jesus had. We don't know how many sisters, but we know there's more than one because it says sisters. So it says brethren. Don't let some well-intentioned devil try to run you to some Aramaic word and say, oh, it means cousin. The Bible knows what a cousin is and what a brother is. It says brethren. John 7, brethren. He had brethren. Matthew 125, firstborn. I don't want to get on the thing, but that's a thing. And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. So for 30 years, Jesus Christ lives in obscurity, right? He grew up. He had a family. He worked. 30 years. We don't know anything about anything other than when he was 12 years old, that one trip to the temple when he's 12. Everything else is just somebody's vivid imagination about him healing sparrows and him healing friends and all the little fun stories that are told around the campfire about what Jesus was like on the kickball court, right? All that stuff is just fancy thinking. He was in obscurity until he shows up at the scene and it's his baptism at age 30 that begins his public ministry. Matthew 3, let's look at Matthew 3, 16. That's a key line of demarcation in Jesus' life, his baptism at age 30, that's when he really begins to serve. And that's when I spill my water all over my face. All right, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. Um, it says, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So that's his baptism. Now go to Acts chapter 10 and look how the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10, look at verse 36. Christian, you want it? those are the papers. Acts chapter 10, verse number 36. Uh, the Lord there comments on the significance of that baptism. Acts 10, 36 says, the word which God sent unto the, this is Peter preaching, unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word I say ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee, after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. So God there is commenting how his baptism at 30 years of age started that public ministry. That's when God put his finger on him, identified him. Do not get caught into the Gnostic belief that Jesus became the Christ at 30. That's a Gnostic belief. That's a heresy that is commonly taught. That Jesus was just a man, and that at 30 years old, he became the Christ. No, 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 no. He was always the Christ. The wise men knew he was the Christ. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? But at 30, he just steps out onto the public scene and begins his public ministry. All right? Don't get outsmarted by a serpent. All right? So, and the book of Matthew really lays out everything about the life of Christ. If I were to teach about the life of Christ, the book of Matthew is a great outline. I'll give it to you right here, and you could jot these things down or listen to the recording and try to jot it down as I talk too fast. But um, uh, chapter 1 of Matthew is the genealogy of the king. The genealogy of the king. He traces it all the way back through David, that kingly line. So chapter 1 is the genealogy of the king. Chapter 2 is the birth of the king. The birth of the king. Just like the Old Testament laid it out, fulfilling prophecy, 
Chapter two, the birth of the king. Chapter three is the announcement of the king. We have John the Baptist, six months before Christ, coming to tell the world, prepare ye the way of the Lord. So the announcement of the king is in chapter three. Chapter four is the preparation of the king. The preparation of the king. He's tempted of the devil with those 40 days in the wilderness and all that trying and temptation. What is he doing? He's being prepared. Chapters 5 to 7. Chapters 5 to 7 are the constitution of the kingdom. The constitution of the kingdom, otherwise known in religious circles as the Sermon on the Mount, which is really... Not, I'm trying to watch The Chosen, but it's, I'm having a hard time doing it because I'm falling asleep all the time. All right, um, but, you know, they make the sermon, I was watching, they make the Sermon on the Mount into this, like, concert or something like that. They're all getting ready. It's, it was Jesus Christ giving. His, it's pretty good. I mean, it's not, I'm not, I'm not hating on it, but it's, uh, it's a lot of discrepancies. But uh, if it gets somebody interested, it's, it's okay. But it was really the king laying out his constitution. You know, blessed are this, blessed are that. That's not how you treat your neighbor. That's how you function in the kingdom that God is bringing to earth. Um, chapters 8 to 9 are the credentials of the king. Chapters 8 through 9 are the credentials of the king. Right after the constitution, when he comes down from that mountain, he starts healing, he starts working miracles, he starts showing people how he's fulfilling the Old Testament and that Messiah with those signs and miracles to attest to who he is. So eight to nine are the credentials of the king. Chapter 10, the kingdom is preached. Chapter 10, the kingdom is preached. Those 12 apostles are sent out to preach the kingdom. Chapters 11 to 12, the kingdom is rejected. Chapters 11 to 12, the kingdom is rejected. He offers it right at the end of 11. The king offers the kingdom. Remember, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, that's a nice verse of my devotional. That was the king offering the nation a millennium of rest if they would receive him. And they reject him. Chapter 12, they reject him. They call him a devil. They call him all kinds of things. So 11, he offers it. 12, it's rejected. So here's a big chunk. 13 to 25. 13 to 25 are the mysteries of the king. The mysteries of the king. Because once he's rejected by the nation, the kingdom goes into those parables and those mystery forms, and God's, Jesus Christ starts talking in these dark sayings that people can't understand. And Psalm 78, God warned them, I will open my mouth in parables. I'll speak unto you in these dark sayings. Why? Because they don't want to receive the truth. Chapter tw- So the kingdom parables represent the threat of the kingdom of heaven being taken from Israel. Chapter 26. The agony of the king in the garden. The agony of the king in the garden. 26 is where we see the passion, the agony, the betrayal by Judas. Chapter 27 is the crucifixion of the king. Chapter 27 is the crucifixion of the king. Please notice it did not happen on Good Friday, but Bad Wednesday. Okay? He didn't die on Good Friday. He died on Bad Wednesday. You have to get your timing right. I don't know yet how you get three days and three nights 
from Friday at 3 p.m. to Sunday morning. That is some crazy common core math that they did that with, but uh, it doesn't work, right? Um, he was crucified, most likely on April 14th at 9 a.m. in the morning on Wednesday, the midst of the week, right? And God turns his back. Let's go to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. <clears throat> he has a sham trial that night. In Matthew 27, 46, it says, um, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So God turns his back on Christ between 12 to 3 p.m., Right, 12 to 3 p.m. is when God starts to turn his back on him. And Matthew 27, 50, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. He dies there. If you look at Luke, if you want to compare that to Luke chapter 23, verse 46, Luke 23, 46, it says, And when he had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. So at 3 p.m. on Wednesday, he dies and is put in a tomb, in the tomb. All right? So that leaves chapter 28 to be the resurrection of the king. And um, you can see all that in Matthew 28. One last thing on the life of Christ in the Gospels. If you want to study the life of Christ, you have to study the four Gospels. Because those four Gospels are the four witnesses. And some people have done some good work harmonizing the Gospels to try to, you know, meet it out because they're the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, seem to go together, and John seems to be going by his own timeline. And some people have tried to put it together so you get this continuous narrative of Jesus Christ's life. But the four Gospels present four different aspects of Christ that you need to know. Matthew presents Jesus Christ as a king, right? The kingly genealogy. Uh, the credentials of the king, the kingdom offered, the kingdom of heaven only mentioned in Matthew, right? That's the lion. Remember those four beasts that are there? A lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle, right? So Matthew is the lion, Jesus Christ the king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark is Jesus Christ the servant. That's the ox. There is no genealogy in Mark because the emphasis is not on who the king is but on what the servant does. Mark just jumps right into Jesus doing miracles. Right? Mark chapter 1, he's healing people already because we don't care about the genealogy of the servant. We care about what the servant does and how he serves. So Mark is all about Jesus Christ, the servant, the ox, that beast of burden. Luke, the medical doctor, presents Jesus Christ as the son of man. The emphasis on the humanity of Christ, right? We have a human genealogy in Luke. It doesn't trace it through uh, Joseph, it traces it through Mary to get the biological line that makes Jesus Christ a human being, all right? And then John presents Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as deity, as God manifest in the flesh, as the Word made flesh. He is the eagle, the divine, the one that soars above, all right? Next section. Let's get into after the resurrection. After the resurrection. And we'll take this section up until, yeah, up until the ascension, up until Pentecost, if you want to add that to your understanding. Just that's a section, right? That's a unique section. The ascension up until Pentecost. Let's look at the book of Acts, chapter 1. Acts, chapter 1. 
Acts 1. Let's, now, we call it the book of Acts, I know. But what's your full title there, right? The Acts of the Apostles, right? It's really the Acts of the Apostles. It's really about what the apostles are doing after the resurrection, right? The Acts of the Apostles. Acts 1. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So Christ was on earth for forty days after his resurrection, and then ascends. And it's after that ascension, at the beginning of the book of Acts, that the apostles really begin their work. Now, this is one of the notes on your sheet, and it's very important that you understand that the book of Acts is a historical book. It's a transitional book. It's not a doctrinal book. That will save you a lot of pain. It is a historical book. It's a narrative of what these apostles are doing, and it's a transitional book of God moving from Israel to the church in his dealings with men, but it's not a doctrinal book. And most of the heresies you're going to come across in the church age are pulling something out of the book of Acts, like in Acts 2.38 to be how you get saved, or in Acts chapter 2 about why we speak in tongues, and all this stuff. It almost always comes out of Acts. The book of Acts is like water moving. It's something in flux. The doctrines are not fixed in the book of Acts because God is pivoting from Israel to the church. So you want to try to put your finger on that pivot, that turn, things are changing. It doesn't get solidified till that book of Acts starts closing. Then you see the doctrines are solidified. God's plan is moving in a different direction. And what do we get after the book of Acts? Romans, the book of doctrine, because God now is showing you here's a direction I'm going to build a church, no longer a nation. If you got that, that's worth the price of admission today. Plus the eggs, you're good to go, right? That's really, that's a good thing to understand, right? It's not a doctrinal book. So the minute somebody talks about healing and signs and wonders, bet your bottom dollar they're going to go to the book of Acts or Mark chapter 16, and you just got to, in the back of your mind, realize this is a transitional historical book. It's not a doctrinal book. There are three very dangerous, potentially dangerous books in your Bible. Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews. Those are three transitional books in your Bible. Matthew, we've talked about, is going from Old Testament to New Testament. Acts is going from Israel to the church. And Hebrews is going from the church back to Israel. Transitional books. Things are changing. Things are in flux. But this is a great, uh, this is a great little outline uh, for the book of Acts, if you want to write this in your Bible, in your notes, but just to break it down really nicely, um, chapters 1 to 7, the Lord is still offering the kingdom to Israel. All right, Acts 1 to 7 is really the focus is on the nation of Israel. The God is still offering the kingdom of Israel in his mercy. Imagine that. <laughs> after, the, after they killed his son, he's still giving them a chance. That's a merciful God. 8 to 20 is the calling out, or I should say, the establishment of the church. 8 to 20 is the church. God's calling out that church and establishing that church by the time we get to Acts chapter 20. And then Acts 21 to 28 is kind of the end of Paul's ministry there. It's Paul 
going to Jerusalem, and then eventually to Rome. That's a simple outline, but it's a neat outline. I have it in the front of my Bible. 1 to 7, Israel. 8 to 20, church. 21 to 28, Paul. 1 to 7, Israel. 8 to 20, church. 21 to 28, Paul. Now let's go to our next section. We've got two more quick ones left, and then we'll take a break. Next section. This next section is also after the resurrection, but let's go now from Pentecost and beyond. All right, so let's take it now. We've taken you up until after the resurrection, up until about Pentecost. That's when they start getting going. They get imbued with the power of the Holy Spirit, and they start their ministry. So now let's take it from Pentecost going forward, all right? So this is the book of Acts again, but the latter part. So Acts 1 to 7 we said the apostles are still preaching to the nation of Israel in Acts 1 to 7, right? So anybody that wants to pull out Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and use that as a gospel presentation, you know they're smoking crack, right? Just for lack of a... I use those extreme examples to get your attention because you're like, where? All right, where? All right? It makes no sense. The focus is Israel. The focus is not on how do we get saved? It's like, uh-oh, we killed our Messiah. Men and brethren, what shall we do? That's the question in Acts chapter 2. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Right? What do we do now that we've crucified the Messiah? Right? It's Acts chapter 16 when we've got a Gentile Macedonian jailer who says, what, shall I, what must I do to be saved? See, that's a very different question that Paul answers. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But that's coming much later than Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, it's all to Jews and Jewish proselytes. And it's like, guys, you missed them. Okay, what do we do now? So let's look at Matthew chapter 3. Okay. To understand what's going on in Acts 1 to 7, you have to understand the three strikes of Israel. They had three strikes, and they struck out. They had three shots to really receive the Lord. All right, Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. First rejection. Israel rejected the Father's offer of the kingdom. John the Baptist represents the Father. He's sent by the Father. And the Father tells Israel, Hey, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. What did they do to John the Baptist? They cut his head off. Strike one. Luke chapter 23 is going to be strike two. Luke chapter 23 is going to be strike two. Luke chapter 23 is strike two. Look down by verse 34. Now this makes great preaching, but let's really figure out what's going on here. Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Jesus is on the cross. Israel is now crucifying their Messiah and watching it, by the way. It says in sitting down, they watched him just like they watched Joseph in the pit. There's a lot of parallels there. It says in 34, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So that's God giving the nation another opportunity because of the son's prayer. So they've rejected the father. They killed John the Baptist. They've rejected the son. They crucified him. But they get another chance because the son asks the father, give them another chance. 
I know we could preach that fall. What a great, I mean, it's great preaching. It's great preaching. I preached at the rescue mission, preached on the street, preached that to a lost person, of course. But doctrinally, it's the father beseech, the son beseeching the father, give your people another chance. They don't know what they're doing. And they get another chance. Acts 1 to 7 is their another chance. And the last opportunity for Israel is made not by the father, not by the son, but by the Holy Spirit in Acts 1 to 7. That's their third strike. They've rejected the Father's message. They've rejected the Son's message. Now the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of his word, is going to be presenting Jesus as Messiah again in Acts 1 to 7. In fact, I trace six messages in that little book, in those little chapters. I'll just give you the verses, okay? Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 36. Acts chapter 2, verse 14 to 36 is Peter on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 14 to 36. <clears throat> Number two. <clears throat> Number two. Second message. Acts chapter 3, verses 12 to 26. Acts chapter 3, verses 12 to 26. That is Peter outside the temple after healing the lame man at the beautiful gate. Peter outside the temple after healing the man the lame man at the beautiful gate. That's their second message. Acts 3, 12 to 26. Third message. Acts chapter 4, verses 8 to 12. Acts chapter 4, verses 8 to 12. It's Peter to the elders of Israel. Peter to the elders of Israel. Acts 4. If you need me to slow down, I will. I'm just trying to lay them out. Acts 4, verses 8 to 12. Fourth message, Acts 4, verses 19 to 20, Peter to the elders again. Peter to the elders again. Acts 4, 19 through 20. It's a great testimony of the fact that Jesus is real to see the apostles' boldness, by the way. These guys went from scared in a room with the doors locked to now their persecutors who they know would kill them because they killed their leader, continuing to preach, continuing to expand and speak. It's a great testimony that these men were dying for something they knew was real, right? So it's a great apologetic, so to speak. If you need to remind people of how you know Jesus Christ is who he says he is, it's because you can see it, all right? Keep going. Um, what are we up to, the fifth one now? Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42, is Peter to the council. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42, is Peter to the council. And then here's our last one, the sixth one. is all the way from Acts chapter 6, verse 9, all the way to Acts chapter 7, verse 60. You think I'm long-winded. Acts chapter 6, verse 9, all the way to Acts 7, verse 60, is Stephen... To the high priest and company. Stephen, to the high priest and company. And let's go to Acts chapter 7 right now. Or their final message, their final warning. <clears throat> Not from Danny Cologne, but from Stephen. <laughs> Acts 7, verse 51. <clears throat> All right. Look what he says, Stephen. <clears throat> Remember I said this was the Holy Ghost offering the kingdom. 
the Holy Ghost pleading with the nation. And it says in Acts 7.51, Stephen preaching, you think I'm mean, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. I don't know how a Calvinist can read that verse and still believe what he believes about irresistible grace. I mean, you, you, they, they're smoking a different kind of ganja, right? You do always resist the Holy Ghost because he can be resisted. As your fathers did, so do ye. Remember when Jesus wept over the city, he said, how often would I have gathered you as a, as a chick, as a, as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. I messed up that verse, but you know that verse. You know the thing. All right. <clears throat> resist the Holy Ghost. Now, Israel now has sinned against the Holy Ghost. Strike three. You're out. Then you say, how do you know that? Now, hold your place in Acts 7, and let's go to Matthew chapter 12. Now, who from our, my previous ramblings, who could tell me what goes on in Matthew chapter 12 from the outline of Matthew? The rejection of the kingdom. Now, look at the warning in Matthew 12, which deals with the rejection of the kingdom. And let me just settle a lot of nonsense that has been said to you probably by, by people that unfortunately don't know the Bible very well, nor care to. Matthew twelve thirty one says, Wherefore I say unto you, Jesus speaking, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. They killed John the Baptist, and God gave him another chance. They put Jesus Christ on the cross and rejected his word, and God forgave them because the Son asked for forgiveness. But when they reject the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 7, God says, you ain't getting forgiven of that one. That's what that's about. That's not about you making fun of somebody who talks in tongues. You make fun of somebody who talks in tongues, say, oh, untie bow tie, all this, all this, you know, and you want to, you know, you get a little in the flesh and you tease them a little bit. Oh, that's the sin against the Holy Spirit. No, that's you just being a little bit of a jerk, but that's not the sin against the Holy Spirit, all right? That's you having a little fun. That's not the sin against the Holy Spirit. Sin against the Holy Spirit's right there. It's a nation rejecting the pleading of the Holy Spirit and that final offer of the kingdom, if you want to be precise. But who wants to be precise with the Bible these days, right? Um, now, go back to Acts chapter 7. You know, people go, oh, you're so doctrinal. Um, yeah. <laughs> Right, it was supposed to not be. Acts chapter 7 now, so they've rejected the Holy Spirit, and this is, and I've gone over this before, and I know you've heard this before, uh, but you've got to get Acts 7, 56 through 59. You've got to understand what's going on there, because Acts 7, 56, 59, they kill Stephen, and God turns away from Israel. Three strikes, you're out. <laughs> right? That's what it says. I see, right, 56, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. That's a Jewish designation, calling him the Son of Man. He's standing. God said after he was resurrected, sit thou at my right hand until I make your enemy, thy enemies, thy footstool. One of the most quoted verses in the New Testament from the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. And there Jesus is standing not to receive the martyr, because there's a lot of people he'd have to be up and down a lot of times. He's standing because right there he could have come back and brought in the kingdom and done all the things. But God stops. And Acts right from there starts going from Israel to church. Right there, God makes a turn. From Israel to church, from kingdom of heaven to kingdom of God, from political to spiritual, from physical to invisible, it all starts to move right there. Um, 
and after Israel's final rejection of the kingdom. Here, God starts calling out a church in chapters 8 to 20. Let me just lay some things out for you. Ready? Acts chapter 8, we've got a revival in Samaria. Samaritans were half Jew, half Gentile. So very interesting, right? Now we start to turn. Now we see Samaritans are having a revival. At the end of Acts chapter 8, an Ethiopian gets saved, who's a, by birth a Gentile, but he had converted to Judaism. He was a Jewish proselyte, but he's, a, by, by birth, he's a Gentile. He's the first full-blooded Gentile, so to speak, that gets saved. Acts chapter 9, Paul gets saved. And he will become the apostle to the Gentiles, the minister to the Gentiles, the teacher of the Gentiles in truth and verity. So God starts moving among the Gentiles. He goes to get himself an apostle for the Gentiles. Acts chapter 10, the number of the Gentile. We've got Cornelius getting saved, an Italian Gentile. Hallelujah. Right? We have an Italian Gentile get saved. Now we've got a full-blooded Gentile that is not a Jewish proselyte in Acts chapter 10 getting saved. Acts 11 the believers are first called Christians in Antioch, Syria. We have a Gentile church established in Acts 11. Acts 8, revival in Samaria. Acts 9, a new apostle. Acts 10, an Italian. Acts 11, a Gentile church. And Acts 13 through 20. Acts 13 through 20, we've got three missionary trips to establish churches to Gentile people. Paul goes on three missionary trips from chapters 13 to 20. He's not going to Jerusalem, though he does, make a, does go up there in 15 for a council. But his missionary trips are mainly to Gentile cities, Gentile places, to preach the gospel to Gentiles, right? He does go into the synagogue, I know, but he's really ministering to the Gentiles. That's a section. Now, Acts 21 to 28 is the end of Paul's ministry, Right? The end of Paul's ministry. It's the end of his life. It's the end of his ministry. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says goodbye to the elders of Ephesus. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Paul had been warned by God at least three times not to go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. But Paul had such a burden for Jerusalem. You know what we say to that? So much for burdens. A burden is not necessarily an indicator of what you should or shouldn't do as a Christian. The Word of God should be the indicator of what you do because, oh, I got a burden. I got a calling for bongo bongo land. All right, that's nice. Good. You can go. Um, but, you know, I said, when were you called to New Jersey? I don't know. I have no idea. I don't think it ever came. I'm still waiting on the call. I just said, oh, there's all these people in New Jersey. There's no church in that area. I sat on a map. I said, we could go do that. Let's go do that, you know. And if the God says, go do something else, then we'll go do something else, right? So Paul's, Paul's got such a burden that it makes him actually contradict what he knows to be true, <laughs> partake of a Jewish feast to purify himself when he was already pure, and the guy that wrote Galatians is sitting there going into the temple to purify himself, and God says, all right, buddy, you want to give up your liberty? I'm going to take your liberty away. The one that wrote about liberty in Galatians is giving up his liberty. Why? Because he had such a burden for the Jews. And it was a real burden. He wished himself accursed, he says, for his brethren, but that got the better of him. 
put this in your pipe and smoke it, right? The devil can use the good things in your life if you're not careful. Amen. You know, I've watched some wrestling now, you know, that I've gone to some meets, and despite it being somewhat awkward to see men in leotards groping themselves, <laughs> but um, you know what you see in wrestling that, and I've seen it many times, I mean, Aaron could probably testify he's being a wrestler, a kid comes in, you know, he goes, he shoots the legs and he comes in. A good wrestler just takes that momentum and just, just puts you flat on your back. And, you know, the devil can take your well intentions and kind of put you on your back sometimes. And he took Paul, who wanted to do the right thing, but he went beyond the word of the Lord and God, the devil, I should say, used it to kind of trick him, or not trick him, but get him. So Paul goes to Jerusalem, he gets arrested, and he, specs the, he spends the next three and a half to four years as a prisoner. His liberty's gone once he gives up his liberty in Christ. Final section, and this won't be long. Final section, and we'll take a break. The church age. The church age. Look at Acts chapter, go to Acts chapter 20. Right? Acts chapter 20. This is one of your notes, I think, to write a note down. But the last paragraph marker in your Bible is in Acts chapter 20, verse 36. That is the last paragraph marker in your Bible. It is when Paul is speaking to the elders from Ephesus. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. He's speaking to the elders of Ephesus. You say, why is that significant? Because if a paragraph, I'm an English nerd, right? Paragraphs start thoughts. You want a new, got a new big thought? Don't just start a new sentence. Start a new paragraph. You're welcome, okay? If a paragraph starts a thought, then the Lord is establishing church history in Ephesus. He's starting right there. He's saying, okay, Here's what I'm doing now. And there's no more paragraph markers in your Bible because that's what God's still doing. He's still doing the church. He starts it right there. Ephesus is the first church John writes to in Revelation. It's the first period of church history in Revelation. Ephesus, that's where church history starts. And that's where the last paragraph marker is, because for as far as God is concerned, that's where the church age is finally established, and I think really begins. So here's a nice breakdown for the book of Revelation, which is um, an overview of church history a little bit. Revelation 1 to 3 is the church age. We've got all these seven churches mentioned, right? These seven churches representing the history of the church, different periods. Revelation 4, we've got a door opens up in heaven and the church goes up. That's the rapture pictured in Revelation 4. That's the last, the last time the word church appears is in Revelation chapter 3. And then a door opens up and somebody goes up in Revelation 4. Revelation 5 through 18 is the great tribulation told four times. The narrative repeats. Revelation 5 to 18 is the great tribulation. Revelation 19, a door opens up again, and somebody comes down. The church comes down with Jesus Christ. That's not the rapture. That's the revelation. Chapter 4, a door opens up. Somebody goes up. Rapture. Chapter 19, door opens up. Somebody comes down. Revelation. Chapter 20, millennium. Chapter 21, 
New heavens, new earth. Chapter 22, eternity. One to three, church age. Four, rapture. Five to 18, great tribulation. 19, revelation. 20, millennium. 21, new heavens, new earth. 22, eternity. And that Revelation 1 to 3 gives, and this is the last note for the day or for, the, for this morning session. Revelation 1 to 3 gives us church history broken down into seven periods, right? Go to Revelation 2. Let's just, we'll look at these real fast. I know Chris is waiting in the wings there. I'll be, right? I was a little presumptuous, sorry. Revelation 2, right? First period of church history is what we call is the Ephesian period. Ephesus. That would be approximately 60 to 200 A.D. Ephesus means fully purposed. Fully purposed. Revelation 2.2. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars. Ephesus, the fully purposed church. And then Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11, you've got the Smyrna period. That's probably 200 to 325 A.D. Smyrna means bitterness and myrrh. Bitterness and myrrh, Smyrna. If you look at Revelation 2.10, it says... Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. Right? You can see right here, 325 A.D. is when we have Constantine declares that edict of Milan and stops the official persecutions. So you see this is a time of great persecutions. This is a time of the Roman Colosseum, of feeding your brethren to lions. Smyrna means bitterness and myrrh. A lot of death, a lot of bloodshed. Next one is Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17. Pergamus. That would take us from probably 325 to 500 A.D. Pergamus means much marriage. Much marriage. Revelation 2.15 says... So hast also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. You see what's happening in this period? The church is getting married to the state. Constantine is making himself that first pontificus maximus, right? He's declaring that edict of Milan, and he's marrying pagan Rome to what's going to become papal Rome. It's the beginning of that. And God calls that time period much marriage. He says, you've got some doctrine there that I don't like. You got some clergy there, right? The Nicolaitanism, that idea that there's clergy and laity. God says he hates that stuff, that doctrine. The next time is uh, Thyatira. I got to spell these two. This is going to take us from about 500 to 1000 AD. Thyatira means order of affliction. We're moving into the dark ages now, people. Order of affliction. That's what Thyatira means. And this monster that is birthed over here starts growing and growing and growing. And uh, you could trace that out. 
And Revelation 2.20, it says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Roman Catholicism suggests you eat something. Right? It's idolatry. It's rising here. Right? The order of affliction. And then you got... Revelation 3 mentions Sardis. That's going to take us from 1,000 to 1,500 A.D. 1,000 to 1,500 A.D. That is, Sardis means red ones. Red ones. A lot of blood being shed in the Sardis period. That's really, I said it before, but I should have said it now. That's really when we're moving into the Dark Ages. Right? Those are persecutions, the hunting of your brethren by the same organization that's right around your corner. Right? The same group. I'm not saying they did it. They just work for the ones that did it. Right? And uh, you move outside America, it gets as crazy as it probably did back then. Um, right here, they call this, you see this five, see these two periods here? 500 to 1500, this is sometimes called the millennial reign of Satan. Because that's when he was really working through the Roman Catholic Church to persecute and stamp out. And you want to read the Fox's Book of Martyrs or the Martyr's Mirror or the Trail of Blood and just feel about as Laodicean as you could ever feel when you read about people having their kids fed to hogs in front of them, uh, people just slaughtered in front of them, uh, no mercy, no compassion, no grace, just absolute vicious, vile, filthy monsters wearing robes backwards and saying they're the vicars of Christ while they're slaughtering families and thinking they're doing God's work while forcing them to pledge allegiance to a round wafer. That is Antichrist. That is Antichrist. And it happened to my brother. You say, oh, don't get hateful. I'm not, I hate it. <laughs> I hate that system with perfect hatred. <laughs> it's vicious, it's vile, and it's got many of my friends and family members seduced. I don't hate the people in the system, but the system, God will not blink an eye to throw that thing and destroy it one day. They will rejoice in heaven when Babylon has fallen. And that's when she had a lot of power. I'm almost done. Six, right after that. Uh, if you want to read a verse, uh, I don't have one. Revelation uh, 3, 7 to 13 is now again to the church of the Philadelphia. We're going to take that from about 1500 to, I'd say, to about, I'd say 1881. <laughs> I could round it up to 1900, but for effect, I want to say 1881, the publication of the revised version in 1881. Revelation 3, 8 speaks about that church and says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door. And no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. The, your King James Bible is put together in that time. It was a time of tremendous missionary activity. The gospel really went around the world several times. Um, it was an amazing time. God calls it the church of the open door. Philadelphia means brotherly love. And then finally, here we are today. Laodicea. 1881 to the rapture. 
I call it, I, I use 1881 because that, like I said, the publication of the revised version in England. This is a, fine, a real formalized movement to abandon the King James Bible. And as we abandon the King James Bible as a church, you start to see the church just <laughs> making God sick. In Revelation 3.20, you see the Laodicean church is so far from God that it actually makes Jesus Christ sick. He says, I want to spew you out of my mouth. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Jesus Christ is on the outside of the Laodicean church. He's not even a part of what's going on. Like Pastor Mel would say, you take the Holy Spirit out of most churches today and they would go right on trucking and not realize that God was even, not even there anymore. Like Samson. Samson really represents the Laodicean church because Samson wist not that the Lord was departed from him. He didn't even realize that the Holy Spirit had left him. So that's Samson, a great emblem. Dies miserable, poor, wretched, blind, and naked. Just like most Christians are today and will end up today at the judgment seat of Christ. Miserable, poor, blind, naked. Laodicea means the rights of the people. Justice for the people. And all this stuff for the people. I don't just mean out there all the social justice worries. I mean, it happens in here, right? We want it our way, not God's way. That is, the people asked for a king, and they got Saul. So that's your sad story of church history there. We'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll take a break and pick it up right there. Lord, we love you.